Well, it is good to be able to gather together as God's people uh, to worship, and that's uh, you know one of the names uh, of the church. As you go to the uh, the Greek, where we get the the word church, is the assembly, the uh, the gathering together of the the saints, and that's certainly been put to the test this year. Uh, but it is good to be together. John's Gospel, chapter five, as we continue uh, to journey into uh, God's uh, Word, and wow, something was really going wild on the back screen. Okay. Uh, And uh, we were just looking at this series of messages, walking through John's gospel and just uh, just actually inviting uh, John to be our teacher, to guide us into a sense of wonder as we were just singing about, a wonder of who uh, God is, who Jesus Christ is, and just praying that uh, he may give us some fresh eyes uh, to see that. As you're finding that, I'll just begin with a, a story. A young man by the name of Brian Sternberg. He was the world record holder in the pole vault. At the University of Washington, he won the NCAA men's pole vault title and in the process shattered the world record for the event twice. Five weeks after his record-setting jump, Sternberg was training at the Heck Edmondson Pavilion in preparation for a trip, a competition in Russia. While performing a double somersault with a half twist on the trampoline, he landed awkwardly. He landed on his neck in the middle of the trampoline where no spotter could help him or get to him. Steinberg, who had uh, uh, performed that gymnastic move hundreds of times, suddenly felt himself unable to move. The injury left him as a quadriplegic. The doctors were concerned even for his survival and some surgeries helped him to be able to live but not be able to move. Philip Yancey in his book interviewed Brian, his book entitled Where is God When It Hurts? He described Brian in this way. Brian's head is of normal size but the rest of his body has shrunk due to muscle atrophy. He can now make some motions with his arms. He can hit switches, turn knobs with difficulty, even type with a special contraption that holds back all but one finger. Brian Sternberg wants desperately to be healed. When in the earlier days of his paralysis he would try mentally to get his body to move, he could not. He would fall back exhausted and say things like, I've had it. I don't know what I'm going to do. Nothing is happening. I can't stand lying tied up like this. I'm exhausted. I've tried too long to move, and I just can't. Then his voice would fade into tears and sobs. Brian Sternberg and his entire family desperately wanted him to be healed. His mother articulated it this way, no one in Brian's condition has ever walked, no one, yet we still believe. I have no idea when God will heal Brian. It's conceivable this particular battle will not be won here on earth. Some people you pray for are healed, some aren't in this world, but that doesn't change God's desire for wholeness, body, mind, and spirit so we won't give up. We're like doctors searching for a cure. We won't stop investigating. 
we think it pleases God for us to persevere. In 2012, Brian's heart and lungs began to fail. In May 23, 2013, Brian Sternberg died. He did not experience a physical healing on this side of eternity. John chapter 5 captures for us in the first nine verses that we're going to look at today a man similar to Sternberg, a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And certainly in 38 years, he had a desire to be healed and and probably had prayed and cried out to God and, and probably chased all sorts of potential cures. But he was yet unhealed. But the difference in this man's story and Brian's story is that Jesus chose to heal him physically. And in doing so, he teaches us some important lessons about how God comes to us and God deals with us in our helplessness and sometimes our hopelessness. The, the, the miracle is, is something that I hope in some way we can all understand and relate to. Hopefully we'll never experience a physical paralysis, but we can all find ourselves paralyzed at times, can't we? It's a habit that you just can't overcome. It's a relationship that seems hopeless. It's a financial sinkhole that you just can't seem to escape. It's a point of growth that just can't get over. Or sometimes we just get stuck because there's no clear-cut option in it and we have a, a hard decision to make and it's gonna change the trajectory of our life and we, we get stuck in the paralysis of analysis and we just seemingly can't make a decision. And yet God, in his grace and his mercy, wants to minister to each of us, come to each of us in our paralysis, whatever form that might take. So let's make sure we understand the setting. Let's set the stage. The first uh, few verses of chapter five. After this, he's he's been uh, in, in Samaria, then he was in Galilee, as we saw last week. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now let's pause right there. Let's make sure we understand what's going on. We have, first of all, a crowded city. It is, it is a time of a feast, so he has now traveled to Jerusalem. Uh, John doesn't specify what, what feast it is. It just did not serve his purposes uh, to identify which one it was, but we can imagine this crowded, crowded city. And in the midst of that, there are all these people gathered in this area, uh, a variety of folks with lots of physical, 
physical ailments and there was this helpless situation, a man who had been an, an invalid for 38 years, 38 years stuck in the same situation, 38 years holding on to hope and yet feeling helpless and hopeless. And he's there, lying there day after day after day. But in the midst of that, there is what I think we can rightly call a superstitious belief. A superstitious belief, you say, Jeff, where, where do you get that? Uh, different English translations handle this differently. Uh, the, the ESV uh, doesn't include the verse I'm about to read in the text because it's not found in, in all of the, the early Greek reliable text. Uh, but it goes something like this, kind of in, in my footnote here. It, it talks about that they're gathered there, the, the paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, we don't really have any other record of, of any healings taking place there or anything giving confirmation to that thought or to that belief uh, that it seems to be perhaps one of those things, maybe even just the stirring of the water as it was fed by a natural spring may have occasionally stirred the water and, and created this belief. And we see that even in our world today, do we not? Uh, we, we see people traveling to places because if you, if you go to this river, there may be a healing, or if you, if you go to this place, somebody had this vision or, or tears from this statue or, or, or whatever it may be, and sometimes we, we pursue, and you can almost understand that when you get that devastating diagnosis, when you, you've given up perhaps all hope, you start reaching out for anything and everything, and, and you're willing to, to travel places, and sometimes people travel half way around the world to, to go to some location that's supposed to have some sort of, of healing power. And so you have this, this gathering of humanity around these pools. Now, just as an aside, this is interesting to me. I hope it'll be interesting and maybe encouraging to you. But I want to talk about this pool for just a, a moment. You see, uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, modern historical scholarship uh, was beginning to, to take aim uh, at the Bible, particularly the, the historical reliability of the Bible. And one of the places they would point to are these first few verses in John chapter 5. And what they would say is, uh, look, obviously there, there are no pools of Bethesda there. Uh, nobody knows about them. Nobody can see them anywhere. And so obviously what this tells us is this was not some eyewitness account of what actually happened. This was somebody writing uh, years and years and years later and kind of filling in details that, that did not exist. And so many tried to use for years this, uh, th this incident as evidence that the Bible is not historically reliable. And then they would also say, and in, in, in addition to that, it talks about five roofed colonnades or five roofed porches. And everybody knows that if anybody, had, if they had built a pool, they wouldn't have built a Pentagon, right? Uh, I mean, they wouldn't have had these, these, this five-sided thing. And so for, for years, folks tried to, to use this to prove the Bible is not historically reliable. 
and of course to call into question the reliability of the Bible overall. That is until, as F.F. Bruce pointed out in his wonderful little booklet, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Until archaeologists discovered these pools. There actually had been a, a church that had been built over it centuries ago and had, had covered them up, and, and, and so no, nobody knew they were there. In fact, is uh, what most folks feel like probably happened is that uh, when, when Jerusalem fell about 70 AD, when the Romans came in, they sacked Jerusalem, they, they cleared off the area, they did all of this destruction, that probably those pools ceased to exist. And here's the interesting thing, as they have dug it out, and I had, had the opportunity to be there in Jerusalem uh, several years ago, and to see that, and you can actually now see uh, the, the pools of Bethesda there. And you say, well, what about the five sides? Well, actually, it, it's two pools that are connected like that. Uh, there's, there's, there's the porches on one side, two side, three side, four side, and then a fifth porch in the middle of those two pools. Exactly as John's gospel described it. As F.F. Bruce goes on to say, the irony is that since probably the pool was destroyed very soon after Jesus' life when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans, now the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5 actually is evidence that this was a contemporary eyewitness. Anybody who lived very long after Jesus wouldn't have even known about those pools. So they used what used to be evidence that you can't trust the Bible as historically reliable. Now is evidence that you can trust the Bible as historically reliable. I don't know if it encourages you, but that encourages me. That encourages me. And sometimes when somebody says, well, well, this proves uh, uh, that the Bible's not true, sometimes it's just, well, just wait. <laughs> just wait. Because we may not know as much as we think uh, that we know sometimes. So we have this situation in Jerusalem where all of these folks are gathered around these pools, most likely in this, with a superstitious belief that if the waters stir, if they're the first one in, that they would be healed. Into that situation, Jesus comes and Jesus offers hope. And we see three things here in verse six that opened up the possibility of change in this man's life. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, I want you to see three things very quickly. First, Jesus saw him. <laughs> in in the, the midst of humanity, in the midst of the crowd, in the midst of the, the, the fe feast and the, all the, the people that had descended, Jesus saw him. And not only Jesus saw him, but Jesus knew his condition. He knew his condition. And you say, Jeff, oh, why are you talking about that? Uh, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to be reminded that Jesus sees me. <laughs> That Jesus knows my condition. And my guess is that there's somebody this morning that needs to be encouraged. That needs to be encouraged and reminded that wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, maybe if you've been facing it for year after year after year, maybe if it feels hopeless and you feel helpless, he sees you. 
He knows where you are. He hasn't lost your file. (laughs) It didn't get uh, (laughs) miscoded. He sees you. He knows your condition. But then he asked him a question. And when you first read it, it almost feels like an insulting question, right? Here's this guy who's been invalid 50 to 38 years and he's been talking, trying to get in this water. He says, do you want to be healed? I mean, doesn't that kind of seem a little bit like, you know, you pull off to the side of the road and there's a car there and the guy's got the hood up and smoke's coming out of it and you say, something wrong with your car? <laughs> well, duh, you know, the guy wants to say, no, my car, I just pulled over my car, want to take a smoke, right? I mean, come on, I'm here because I want to be healed. Why would Jesus ask that question? Because he knows human nature. He knows us. He knows sometimes we get comfortable with our condition. Oh, we'll complain about it. We'll tell folks about it. We'll moan about it. But sometimes we just get comfortable. It's the known. Sometimes, while there's a part of us that wants to be healed, there's another part of us that's afraid to change. And there's, there's I want to change, but sometimes the, the fear of the unknown of what change would be like and what it would cause to what it would require and what it would change is more daunting than continuing to deal even when it's an uncomfortable, painful situation and I know through the years of coming alongside people that sometimes people get stuck oh they they want to change but what change will require what what is unknown out there seems to be more daunting they almost get comfortable in their misery. Jesus saw him. He came to him. He asked him this question. Do you really, really want to be healed? But there's a barrier that stood in the way of this healing. This one barrier that still stands in the way of my healing and your healing today. Verse seven, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. What was the barrier to this man experiencing a healing, experiencing a change? It was his own solution. It was his own solution that he had, he had now convinced himself after all these years that the only possible hope he had was to be the first one in the water when it stirred. And because of his inability to move, he wasn't ever going to be the first one in the water. You say, well, how's that a barrier? Because very often we can become so focused on one solution that we can't see God's solution. 
Sometimes we, 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 we've analyzed and we've thought and, and maybe we feel like I've done all my homework and, and this is the only answer. This is the only solution. This is the only way. And if it can't happen this way, if change doesn't come this way, if healing doesn't come this way, it's not going to come. And so we begin to dictate the terms. And it becomes a barrier because our solution is not the same as God's solution. And sometimes when we get so locked onto a solution, and particularly if we now convinced ourselves that's the only solution and it's, it is unreachable, then we become comfortable. We become accustomed around the pool of misery. Oh, we, we tell you we don't like, we would tell you we, we want to be healed, but then we quickly turn to all the reasons it can't happen, all the reasons that it can't change, it can't improve, it can't get better, I can't grow, I can't overcome that habit, I can't get out of this mess. Because we've come, grown accustomed to life around the pool of misery. Let's look at the next couple of verses because they give us three things that activate the reality of change in our lives. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, you got your solution, listen. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus had another solution and it started when God challenges us to do the impossible. He challenges us to do the impossible. Get up. There's a man who hasn't been able to get up on his own in 38 years. He could tell you all the reasons that he could not get up. But God comes and he asks you to do the impossible. Notice what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't make him comfortable where he was. He didn't say, man, that's hard. That's a tough break. Let me get you an extra pillow here. He didn't argue theology with him. I didn't, he didn't talk about I didn't, that angel. What's that angel story coming to the water and all that? He, he didn't even offer to help him with his solution. Listen, I'm pretty quick. I'm pretty strong. I'll get you in that water. He called him to do what he could not do on his own. The only way I can do the impossible is by depending upon God. And there are times we, we, we say to God, my solution is this, and it's the only solution. And God says, trust me to walk in this way. And we say, I can't do it. He says, I know. I know you can't do it in your own strength. But if you will trust me, you will do the impossible. He challenges us to do the impossible. But notice, secondly, he, God tells us to remove, to remove the temptation to relapse. Not only get up, but take up your bed. Give up your spot in line. Give up your solution. Don't have this as plan B to go back to. 
You see, it's very easy for us to get comfortable with a pattern or a habit in our life. His pattern, his habit has been for 38 years probably to to come to this area, to come to this pool, to see himself as an invalid. Sometimes to move forward into God's preferred future, to move forward beyond the place of stuckness or paralysis, you and I have to burn some bridges. We have to, to cut off those things that will make it easy to go back to the comfortable, easy to go back to the habitual. So if we're trying to eat healthy, you don't buy twice as much Halloween candy as you're going to need so you can have a lot left over around the house afterwards, right? <laughs> you, just, you get that stuff out of there because if it's sitting there on the counter, it's too easy to just pick it up. We see this in people dealing with substance abuse all the time. You may have to cut off. You may have to not go to some places you've gone before. You may have to to back away from some relationships that have have fed and unhealthy patterns in your life. You may have to to build new relationships and new structures and new accountabilities into your life. You have to to burn some bridges. Sometimes uh, coming along someone whose life has got entangled at adulterers, you're going to have to make some changes. You may have to move to another neighborhood. You may have to get another job. You may have to move to another position in the company. You may have to, to, to end this friendship with this couple or whatever it may be because you, you, at some point you have to, to burn the bridges. You have to remove the temptation to relapse. God asked him to do the impossible and he told him to remove the temptation to relapse. But a third thing I want you to see is that God expects continued success. God expects us to continue to walk so that he says, take up your bed and walk. The Greek verb there, the tense of it is not just a one, one point in time walk, but it's this picture to walk and to keep on walking, to continually walk. Jesus expected something of this man. He expected him now to live a life based on his healing. Don't live a life based on what has been your identity for 38 years, whether that's been from birth or maybe uh, like Brian, something happened to him and there was an accident and brought him now 38 years of of this uh, invalid condition. Uh, but, But whatever it is, that is no longer who you are. That is no longer your identity. You are now to walk in light of your new healing, your new identity. That you and I are are to walk in faith, and faith is doing what God tells you to do. (laughs) James said, don't just be a a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. He said, faith without works is dead. It's not just about having intellectual theology, but it is about about walking in light of the promises and the revelation of God. It is walking and keep on walking in light of your new identity. And that's what Jesus says to each and every one of us. Don't walk in your old identity. Don't, Don't get stuck in your solution. But hear me. Trust me, follow me, obey me. 
Burn some bridges if you have to. (laughs) Reorganize some things. Remove some things from your life if you have to. But walk and keep on walking. Years ago, G. Campbell Morgan said, every parable that Jesus taught was a miracle of instruction. And every miracle that Jesus wrought was a parable of instruction. I'm going to leave that up there a moment. Think, well, what does that mean? Well, if nothing else, he's reminding us whenever Jesus taught, there was, it was a miracle. It, is, it was God, God in the flesh, communicating to human beings in a language and with symbols and pictures and stories that we could understand. God bringing eternal truth, kind of putting it on the bottom shelf, so to speak, so that you and I could understand it. That's the parable. But he also reminds us that when Jesus did a miracle, it wasn't just for a show, right? That's why John in his gospel calls them signs because they point beyond themselves. It's not just the act of the physical healing, but it is a parable of instruction. It points to something beyond itself, to the reality of the healing that we all need. See, some of you may be here today and you may be saying, well, Jeff, I I hear you. And listen, my heart goes out to somebody that's had the experience this man had or, or the experience that uh, uh, Brian Sternberg and his family walked through or maybe many, many folks that you know. But maybe you're here today and you say, you know, Jeff, honestly, I don't feel helpless. I don't feel hopeless. I don't feel paralyzed. I mean, Physically, I'm doing well. You know, financially, things are good. And even though this has been a, been a, been a kind of a crazy, crazy year, I mean, I've been blessed, and career-wise, we're still on track. And, and I don't know of any habit that's just keeping me up at night because I can't break it. I, mean, I feel pretty good. This is a parable of instruction because it reminds us of the greatest healing. The fact that each and every one of us is helpless and hopeless spiritually apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's connect this passage to what we've just saw enacted in this miracle of healing. It was by grace. It was by grace grace. Jesus saw him. Jesus knew his condition. Jesus came and did for him what he could not do for himself. And that's my story. And that's your story. And that's the story of every human being apart from the intervention of God through Jesus Christ. We are hopeless and helpless spiritually. In my sin, I have rebelled against God. I have walked away from God. I've tried to run my own life apart from God. I've tried to replace God. 
God on the throne and sit there myself. By grace, God intervened. Jesus came and he lived the life I was called to live. He died the death I deserved to die. He was buried. He was resurrected. He's ascended to the Father. He's coming again someday to call us to himself, to restore a broken relationship, to make us part of his forever family, to move us back into the center of his kingdom. It is by grace. Nothing I could do would ever earn that. There was nothing this invalid did that earned Jesus' healing touch. But it's also, Ephesians says, by faith. By grace through faith. Through faith that there is this, there is this response, this individual personal response. Now, I think even that response is, is an act of God in our life, the one who works in us both the will and the work for his good pleasure. That through faith, I, I respond. I respond trusting, not in my solution, my morality, my religion, my I'm going to get my act together, my I'm going to do better, my I'm going to be generous, my I'm going to end up with more good deeds than bad deeds. I no longer lean on my solution, but I entrust my past. I entrust trust my present. I entrust my future fully and completely to him. I take him at his word and trust in him. But that's not the end of the story. By grace, through faith, for good works. For good works. We were as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Take up your bed and walk and keep walking. That we continue to walk. We continue to live in light of our new identity. We continue to understand who we are now as healed, restored, part of God's family, a beloved child of God by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we begin to live differently. We begin to walk differently. We begin to to interact with one another differently. We begin to have different values and different ways of thinking and speaking and dealing with each other. And we're gonna explore this more next week as we kind of bring in the second part of this encounter with this man here in Jerusalem. But we walk and we keep on walking in light of our new identity. This miracle was not just for one man, but it was for all of us. For all of us. Even if we never feel like we're, we're, we're going to have a time in our life when we feel helpless and hopeless, we are spiritually helpless and hopeless and paralyzed apart from the intervening grace of God. Paul Tripp put it this way, hopelessness is the doorway to hope. You have to give up on yourself before you'll be excited about the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. In order for me to experience what Christ has provided, I have to give up on my solution. And I have to trust fully and completely in his solution. By grace, through faith, for good works. So I just want to ask you right now just to to pause and bow your heads and let's pray together. Father, I don't know all that you're purposing to do in these moments. 
But as surely as this invalid heard the words of Jesus to get up and take up his bed and to walk and to keep on walking, Father, help us to hear the voice of your spirit. And Father, I pray, Lord, that even in this room right now, even, even in those that might be joining online, Father, that if there are those that, Lord, they don't know the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ. Maybe they've been religious, maybe they've been irreligious, I don't know. But Father, would you show them the true condition of their heart, their hopelessness and helplessness apart from you, Lord, would you, by your grace, come to them and heal. Lord, would you help them to understand your call, to give up their own solution, and right now just to cry out to you. Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for putting my hope in my own goodness. I cry out to you for healing for life, for forgiveness. I come to you and submit myself to your rightful rule and reign. Teach me to walk and to keep on walking in the ways that you have prepared. And Lord, we just ask this now together in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.